0: A.G. Geiger Presents, episode number two, Brendan Constantine. My name is Michael Delgado, and I'm your host. You're listening to A.G. Geiger Presents... Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. I come to you each week from the fantastic library bar in the spectacular Mayfair Hotel, right here in downtown L.A. Today I'm meeting Brendan Constantine, L.A.'s most talked about poet. He's an L.A. native and ardent supporter of the poetry scene here. And Brendan has been infecting people with the poetry virus for years, not only in his role as a teacher, but one who leads sought-after workshops in hallowed places like Beyond Baroque, where he recently emceed their 50th anniversary party. Across the Art Deco lobby, I spot Brendan as he checks his watch. He's uniformed in a poet's black coat, black jeans, white t-shirt. Light bounces off his signature shaven pate. He looks almost like a minister, but the glint in his eye is one of mischief, not redemption. He strides towards me. It's time to
1: meet. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street?
0: I think I may have passed.
1: You know Geiger by sight?
0: Geiger's in his early forties, medium height, faddish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects a knowledge of antiques and hasn't any.
1: Oh yes i think his left eye is glass
0: hello 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 my name is michael delgado and you're listening to ag geiger presents tales from the la art underworld coming to you from the library bar in the historic mayfair hotel right here in downtown la today i'm meeting poet brendan constantine brendan's first collection letters to guns was released in february 2009 from red hen press to wide acclaim his work can be found in many of the nation's standards including best american poetry and poem day among many others Brennan has received grants and commissions from the getty museum james irvine foundation the nea and he's presented his work to audiences throughout the u.s and, and, and europe and he's appeared on npr's all things considered He currently teaches creative writing at the windward school if you've never seen brendan perform you're missing a a juicy slice of the la poetry scene he's the son of two working actors and brendan doesn't just read his work he adds just enough theater to wring more meaning from his intricate wordsmithing some purists may not like that about his readings or they may just be jealous but i suggest you catch his next appearance please welcome Brendan Constantine. Hi. Thank hey. you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. Um, so you're a busy guy. You've got workshops at Beyond Baroque, Beyond Baroque uh, and elsewhere. And, and we started to talk earlier before the recording about the aphasia workshops, and I, I definitely want to talk about that again. You're sure. Doing, you're doing that again. Um, uh, you're performing and teaching and mm-hmm. obliging me today. Thank you. Um, but I wondered, you know, where you find time to write and how you go about it. I guess I'm interested in the discipline that you have or
1: how you set yourself up, or does it just sort of come to you? Gosh. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's a constant struggle. I, I I am very busy in my city's communities of poetry. And there are, you know, there's more than one. There's, there's quite a few of them. L.A. is such a... Uh, a a singular city in that uh, it's so huge, and nobody seems to know where it begins or ends. It seems to start at the ocean and then vanish somewhere around Kansas. Uh, and we have, you know, uh, you can have, you know, you can have various arts communities thriving within a few miles of each other, and they have no idea that the other one's there. Um, and so, uh, I. Uh, I've been trying to stay uh, very active. I, I, uh, I'm always interested in where there's a new reading or a new workshop or you know, who's doing what. And um, so, yeah, I do stay uh, quite busy. Um, I teach and I also try to do a fair amount of uh, volunteer teaching at schools that may have had to cut their arts programs and that kind of thing. And finding time to write is just an ongoing challenge. I would love to have, you know. A few set hours out of every day that I could sit and organize right. a thought, but uh, I've never had that actually. Right. Uh,
0: but and yet you've got an awful lot of workout.
1: I do. Uh, uh, I, I sometimes think uh, of it as though I write at large. Uh, <laughs> I write. <laughs> I write on any available surface. Um, you know, uh, on armrests, you know uh, on lunch break and um, you know. so do you, you so, so you're at lunch break and then do you, so do you
0: find sort of an inspiration there like whatever you're looking at or you've got something already in your head and you're working it out or
1: that too you know that too depends uh, I try to you know I've, I've always got you know two or three three things uh, brewing um, you know uh, a draft of something that I'm continuing to work on either on a on a computer or a laptop or in a notebook but if I'm just getting an opportunity to sit and write or as has been happening more and more if I'm leading a class where I'm encouraging the group to to just you know to do what we call free writing then you know I'll try to do it with them you know I think think it can be a you know a fairly persuasive tool in teaching to have the teacher doing the project with you or you can just say class we're gonna be quiet now right exactly (laughs) so right now I mean I gotta say in the last weeks the most significant writing I've done has been it's like the last two or three weeks has been you know because I did the assignments I was giving my my high school students and I just did them along with them and they they went somewhere so to answer your question is, yeah, I do have, uh, I tend to have a few things that I'm already working on, but I also still absolutely like to just go get completely lost on the page to just start writing with absolutely nothing in mind. I think of uh, a quote I just heard recently from Enrique martinez uh, Salea, the painter who, and I'm sure I'm going to ruin this quote, but as I uh, as I understood it, he said, I don't just go sit and paint something that I have in mind. I paint to find out what I have in mind, uh, you know. And uh, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in accidents. I'm a big believer in getting lost in uh, letting chance uh, into my writing, you know. And uh, uh, and I think I think if we're honest, um, and by we I mean you know just my contemporaries in writing. I think a, a place where you see a lot of writers get stuck, stuck in the mud is as a result of having forgotten how much chance has always played a role. You know, you, uh, God help you if you've ever had some positive reinforcement on your writing. anybody's ever said, <laughs> that's a good job, right. <laughs> you know, and then you go about consciously or unconsciously trying to recreate that good job. But instead, you know, and, and chances are that, that 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 good job, that that time when you really connected with somebody, and you connected with your own writing, probably came about because you were open to, right, you know, some and, some chance, some changes, in,
0: and for my own work, I mean, I know mean exactly what you're talking about. I, I, not writing, but in painting, I, you know,
1: I mean, I'll, I'll look at some, back at something, and go, oh, that was, that was a happy accident, you know? right? <laughs> Great phrase, the happy accident, and then you. And then to go back later on, you know, because you're feeling like nothing's connecting. And you say, well, why don't I try to do something like I did before? But now you're doing it, trying to force it out of sheer will. Right. So you're going to produce something half as good as you used to be, rather than, you know, uh, going and getting lost. And also, that's the other thing, is we want everything we try to just, you know, we want to, you know, knock it out of the park first try. And it's like, no, no, you've got to you've got to make some huge mistakes you know I'm always telling my students it doesn't matter how successful you are or think you are it doesn't matter if you have you know Pulitzer Prizes piled up behind the couch and libraries named after you your worst writing will always lie ahead of you right. you know and you're gonna and, and that's a good thing you're gonna have to you're gonna have to go write some just total you know drack and as with anything that you're trying to uncover You know, you're going to have to take a few things out of the drawer that you don't want, and they're going to have to come all the way out, because the thing you do want is under them, and there's no other way to get at them except to uncover them, you know. At least that's, that is my abiding philosophy right now. Well, that that could change
0: next week, but... Well, I'm very good at the failed experiment
1: part. Nice.
0: (laughs) I was just, I just got to see a
1: couple of months ago, um, poet Elizabeth Iannacci took me to see Laurie Anderson. Oh, yeah. And Laurie Anderson was talking to the audience about how so much of the work that she became known for, work that you know distinguished her career, were all Plan B. You know, Plan A had completely you know you know what she'd been shooting for originally had completely you know imploded. It hadn't it hadn't worked at all. And it had, you know some crucial element wasn't available, or there was. You know, or you know, there was uh, some aspect in the making of it that was unstable, and it fell apart. And the result was, okay, let's see if what we can make out of what's left or what we do have, and then that became the piece of art that actually, you know, um, right. had the greatest connection and offered the greatest satisfaction to the artist. And, mm, but um, yeah, thinking you know what it's going to be about, an uh, uh, an often cited quote. Uh, by Richard Hugo from his really wonderful book, The Triggering Town, Uh, a book I highly recommend to anybody who, you know, uh, is uh, jammed up and wants to loosen up and and, uh, start writing again for whatever reason, if it's classic writer's block or what have you. Um, He talks about how so much writing will always have two subjects. There'll be the subject that gets you going and then there's the subject that is discovered. You know, in that process, Um, um, one way that I I found that that seems to have been fruitful to talk about it in the classrooms these days, particularly when we're writing poetry, is to remember that the word stanza, which is a group of lines in poetry, is uh, is a word that means room. Uh, In Italian, I mean, if I was to go to Italy and book a hotel for the night, I would have to book a stanza to sleep in. The stanzas of the poem are the rooms of the poem, and if we acknowledge that our true subject is something that always has the potential to come on its own late in the process, then hopefully, you know, we might feel a little more liberated in going and just writing with nothing in mind. Uh, trusting that what we are in fact doing is getting a few rooms built so that the subject has a room to arrive in you know I've got to give it a place to show up I've got to give it a door to knock on and uh, later on in the editing process I can go oh this poem really starts in the living room or this poem starts in the bedroom I can edit out all those other rooms that I started with you know uh, before the uh, before the subject knocked or maybe I need every single room to get to it Um, but So poetry is architecture. That's a good way of looking at it, certainly. Uh,
0: I'm I'm curious, too, about, you know, my uh, understanding of poetry is pretty limited, I I must say, But um, and maybe this is a romantic notion, but, you know, there was a time, I think, when, you know, in the counter-revolution or the revolution, or or more currently in in, uh, South America or even, uh, say, Poland, when... Um, you know, they came for the poets first, mm. and I just you know I can't see that now. You know, I don't think in in our time in America anyway that you know in a in a time of political unrest that they're going to come for the poet first.
1: That's interesting. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was that said. You'll notice the dictators never jail literary critics Um, uh, and uh, uh, you know it's the artist that's the threat um, you know not the person who supposedly really knows what the artist is talking about uh, quote-unquote yeah well I I also think that uh, our understanding of the poet's role has changed and uh, And I don't know, you know, I'm familiar with with what you're talking about, and I'm familiar with that uh, expression and the philosophy behind it. I think that uh, the poet also has always been a kind of stand-in for anyone, a sort of surrogate identity for anyone who was living the life of an artist, Um, because you'll notice that a person who paints gets called a painter. A person who does carpentry gets called a carpenter. But someone who writes poetry is not a polymer. They're a poet. <laughs> There's this whole identity that seems implicit in the thing. Uh, and And it, you know, and depending on who you ask, what is implicit in there is everything from poverty right. to, you know intense inner turmoil and um, you know. It's as though somebody said, "Well, what do you do for a living?" Well, I'm misunderstood. That's uh, that's uh, I'm you know uh, I'm I'm underachieving you know exquisitely you know and uh, um, and uh, that the you know the the poet in that sense is anyone who is openly expressing themselves and living for it or doing it because they have to um, who isn't just in that sort of bourgeois sense making art because it's pretty or entertaining but because they are in fact working something out, they're responding to the world around them. It may even be their own conspicuous hand in their sanity. And that understanding of the poet I still think is still quite formidable in uh, 2018 and is a voice that uh, someone might wish to silence. Um, for fear of losing control but I do think what has changed and what might be you know what might be behind you know what you're sensing is that with the advent of social media and the internet in general we have a forum like we've never had before. Um, So many more people have a voice Um, and you know uh, the uh, and, and the the forum that we have the theater for public discourse is is so amplified right now that i think you know uh, there may be a few tasks that might have been you know specific to the poet for a very long time that are now much easier for everyone to access just as poetry seems to be easier for everyone to access now. There has been a significant jump in poetry readership in the United States anyways in just the last three or four years. Um, A jump in uh, just an awareness and enjoyment of poetry and the number of people that identify as responding to poetry, figures that transcend literacy caps. Um, Because of course you don't really need to know how to read anymore. You know, I mean we've you know, or uh, I should say, you don't need to. You don't necessarily need to know how to read again, yeah. Because it is cyclical, and we're sort of back in a place where the oral oral tradition of poetry is very strong again. Uh, and um, you know, it's also compact, right? Which fits the, the
0: 140 characters kind of thinking. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know what? Uh, what my poetry teachers. Uh, hello, Suzanne Lummis. Uh, used to emphasize all the time in the classroom, compression, I would say, compression. Um, you know, you weren't necessarily trying to cram anything in there. You were also looking for uh, a kind of elegance, a kind of economy. But you were, you were, you were uh, putting an emphasis on compression. I actually remember being in a poetry classroom and, you know, what does this poem have, class? And we all put our hands up and said it in unison, compression! And, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, speaking of
0: classes, and te- you know you've been teaching for a number of years now, and uh, I mentioned at the top of the show about your your work with uh, aphasia. Um, yeah. Afflicted with aphasia, and you now have another workshop about that, and I was hoping you could talk about that because it seems to me, aphasia, uh, which maybe you could define better than I can. Um, for the listeners, but aphasia seems to be just the,
1: the most apt metaphor for for trying to write poetry. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, uh, that it's interesting that you put it that way. Yeah, uh, uh, about a year, year and a half ago, I was contacted by uh, a very, very kind man, uh, uh, a speech pathologist named Michael Beale, uh, whom along with his wife, uh, Francie Schwartz, uh, we're curating, if you will, a book club for people afflicted with uh, aphasia at and, the Echo Park Branch Library.
0: And for uh,
1: the aphasia is. The aphasia is, to, is basically an inability to make words. It is a language processing disorder. You weren't born with it. Um, it is a condition that can be. Uh, brought about in a variety of ways. Some people have it as the result of stroke, some people have it as the result of of accidents. I'm I'm currently uh, one of the one of the members of the group, you know, uh, is dealing with aphasia as the result of a very serious uh, water skiing accident. Um, It can be brought about by uh, uh, Alzheimer's or senility. It can be brought about by a a number of different uh, uh, syndromes and misadventure. Uh, uh, a f- close friend of mine got it as the result of encephalitis, huh. and uh, she was a writer. <clears throat> and uh, the the recovery from that state, and and as I understand it, recovery, full recovery from aphasia is very very rare. If you have full on aphasia, it's not a thing that you necessarily ever get rid of. Um, you know. Uh, you there are improvements and some people you know depending on how they get it may find that they're able to recover some of their their faculties Uh, if some people have a mild stroke they may have periods of aphasia and and eventually you know see many of the effects wear off but for the most part it's a it's a it's a life condition and there are different varieties of it Uh, some people that experience aphasia cannot make any words at all in the, most, uh, in the most extreme cases. Some may only be able to make a few words and no others. Uh, more commonly, uh, people have uh, just an inability to find very particularly the words they want in a given situation and will either substitute words that uh, mean close to the same thing or words that sound like the words they want. Uh, and uh, and sometimes there's absolute random replacement. I'm still learning about these uh, different uh, conditions, which are called paraphasias. And uh, it can be it can be an enormously uh, 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 difficult, traumatic, uh, heartbreaking experience uh, to not be able to express yourself in this way. And as I say, since you are not born with it, people with aphasia have experiences of being able to express themselves, and then they have this, and then they can't do it anymore. Uh, and Or at least not do it the way they used to. And it can be enormously uh, uh, discouraging. And this gentleman, uh, as I say, reached out to me, Michael, uh, and I'm still not 100% sure how he found out about me. But he came to me and he said... Uh, whenever the book club read books of poetry the group was particularly engaged and found that they were um, not only uh, connecting emotionally with the work but they were they were having uh, what he described as uh, interesting experiences in the effort of uh, conveying their reactions to it and he said "I, i wonder what would happen if we had a poetry workshop and we discussed doing this and i And in the process of trying to put it together, we began to discover that while there were a number of poets that have had aphasia uh, and struggled with it, perhaps most famously Thomas Transtromer uh, towards the end of his career, um, there didn't seem to be any record that we could find, at least online and at the library, of pilot programs for a poetry workshop for people with this condition. I guess it makes sense. I mean, I guess somewhere somebody said, well, why would you offer a writing class to people who can't make words? That seems awfully cruel. Why would you do that? Uh, But, um, so I kind of went in cold and I had to say to the group, look, I I don't know how to teach a writing workshop for people with aphasia, but I do know how to teach a writing workshop for writers. And the response to that was huge. It's like, well, let's see what happens. So it is very much... A laboratory, which is how I've always liked a writing workshop to be. I think that if you're going to a generative workshop, a workshop where you're going to write, uh, now is this part of a research for the pathologist, or is this? It has become part of his reth- research. It was not at first, but as uh, we did one, we did a we did a six week course last year, and the response to that was really strong, and the results were tangible. We had. You know, in terms of improvement or just, um, or the quality of work. Uh, how would I measure this? What we had were uh, certainly in confidence, uh, uh, a, a, an improvement in a sense of having expressed oneself. Um, that again, I, not looking for cures, but just looking at. Looking at it as though I'm just here to add to the sum of light. I'm just here to add to the number of good days, you know, uh, you know, uh, as opposed to frustrating ones. One member of the group, who had severe uh, 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 challenges as the result of stroke, aphasia being only one of them, uh, paralysis being another. Who couldn't really even hold a pen steadily? You know, in the third or fourth week, managed to get a pen into her hand. She uh, had, was so consumed with a desire to write a poem that she couldn't even she couldn't even stand to have the person that was helping her and who was effectively taking dictation and writing out her right. thoughts. Previous to that, she got the pen into her hand and just started making things happen on the page herself you know, as her hands shook and realizing that she could get to what she wanted to say with mostly nouns and, you know, one or two modifiers and do the rest with ellipses and get, you know, and line breaks and get a poem at the end of it that conveyed a real emotional urgency about you know, about deaths in her family and her own sense of isolation and she did it in maybe ten words, uh, but poetry, the examples of poetry had sort of liberated some understanding for her what she could do with what she had available to her. So I can't say that there's, you know, I don't can't say that anybody was cured, but there did seem to be an enlightenment of, of how one could speak, that that if poetry is a thing that manifests itself from culture to culture among people who discover that they need a special way to express special things that there are experiences of wonder and pain and beauty and disappointment and rapture and loss and all of the uh, all of the conditions of the heart that are in one way or another and unsayable and that you know, and that then manifest poetry you know for this purpose, then then uh, uh then its example is a very useful one for somebody who may feel as though they only have a handful of words that that are not working with the common models of speech that are not you know uh, there are enough examples in poetry of poetry. Uh, Doing all kinds of things, you know. If um, you know, we there there's you know there are traditions in poetry now of poetry that that have no subject-verb agreement that don't uh, that don't necessarily have to confine to a, a recognizable prose narrative structure that you know that you can move from idea to idea to idea, and some of this you know has been very liberating for some of these uh, for the, some of these people. Um, one thing that does happen quite often is that in the effort of substituting one word for another, you know, a person with aphasia, you know, will quite often assemble a sentence that to somebody on the outside looks fascinating. You're like, oh my God, I would never have chosen those words. And inside they're struggling going, well, yes, but (laughs) I'm glad you think it's poetry, buddy, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to, you know, Uh, an example was the other day uh, we were talking to one of the members of the group and saying, you know, what is it that you're getting out of writing? What do you find that, that you know? What is happening when you write? Why do you write poetry? And he, with some effort, he got out to let me out. Um, you know, if he'd said to express myself, to you know, to convey my emotions, if he'd you know, if he'd composed a recognizable sentence, it may not have had the same emotional uh, impact. Now, it would be fair for him to say, well, I'm glad that that was a very expressive sentence for you, but these were the words that I chose because I couldn't get the ones I wanted. And what I think is significant about poetry, the example of poetry, and perhaps persuasive in that circumstance uh, about the argument of poetry, is that I'm 51 years old. I have been identifying as a poet since 1994. I have yet to meet one single poet who was positive they got it right, or who had managed to say what they had wanted to say. We all come away from it going, it's close, it's almost there, you know. Uh, But if you stare at it too long, well, are you sure it's done? Eh, Well, I could tweak this, I could take this comma out, I could put this, I've never met a poet that came away from a poem going, nailed it! They're, they're, okay, I've written the last poem about love. There will be no more poems about love. I mean, I've said everything that can be said. I've said, it. you know, no, we all come away from our work just like, I don't know. I mean, it's a very American, I think, response to art to say that, you know, and you see this usually like, you know, in commercials for something where they talk about, you know, a pursuit of excellence. Um, You know, and the examples are quite often montages of ballet dancers extending an amazing kick and somebody doing a flourish with a paintbrush and somebody emoting on a stage and, and on and on and on. But if you talk to any one of those artists after their performance, it's always Yeah, I didn't fully extend on that last kick I could have well, I was I was trying for this note and I, I don't know, I ended up on an eighth note, but I don't know, I managed to bring it around. I mean, well, I just came out of you know, the downbeat. Well yeah, I, I wanted this word, but that word presented itself you know, I've never never met anybody that came you know, came away just like uh, yeah, I, you know, this is exactly what I wanted to say. I absolutely nailed it. There it is. You know, more often than not, you know, it's the opposite. And I got to say, there, there, you know, among some of the writers that I was have been working with in the aphasia group, that has been a very persuasive example to say, yeah, like, I, you know, this is poetry. This is what that's for. This is yeah. for the stuff you can't say. This is for the stuff that nobody seems to be able to find a way to say. And and that's got to be very encouraging for them, right? Because they would see.
0: That their struggle, in fact, came out poetically. Even mm-hmm. though they wanted it to be maybe expressed differently, they could see the value of in that "Let Me Out" example. For example, uh, and
1: un- un- a, yeah, and under the best conditions, a reconsideration of of the words they have. You know, an opportunity to look back at them and say, "Okay, I really can see this differently. I can see, you know, that I made something, um, and I got, I got close." You know. Uh, you know, I, it would be wonderful if art was the place where we, where we went for excellence and to just get it right. <laughs> but so much, I, I, art seems to me to be the place where we get it wrong. And uh, and that, that is that is part of it. That that is that is necessary. I mean, you know, that you were. There are so many wonderful examples. I think of the way you know diamonds are appraised. You know that you know, if you, when you're measuring the uh, the perfection of a diamond, you're measuring it against an impossible standard. A perfect diamond would be composed entirely of light. It's a thing that can't exist. Everything, you know, that is brought, every measurement brought to bear on a diamond is in the nature of a flaw. Um, and likewise, you know, you know, you you know another one is the ancient mariners. You know, we're told as kids that they navigated by the stars, but what is often left out is that you no, know, they quite often aimed the ship for the star right there on the horizon. And they, none of the men on the boat thought they were going to reach it, but they knew that if they didn't aim for it, they would never get home. Uh, you know, and you know it's this impossible thing that we're after. We have to, we we have to reach for it. I mean, you have to go for it. Or you know, another one that I love is the a story that's probably apocryphal. Uh, The the version I heard was attributed to Stravinsky and a violinist who was struggling with a piece that Stravinsky had written and who eventually, frustrated, went to Stravinsky and said, "I, I can't play this the way you've written it. And then emboldened when Stravinsky didn't blow up at him and said, in fact, I don't think anybody can play this the way you've written it. Stravinsky supposedly responded by saying, "Yeah, I know. Uh, I was interested in the sound of someone trying to play it, <laughs> uh, and you know, uh, and that's where that's where I try to begin. And you know, all of it, you know, uh, is um, I'm probably not going to reach it, but let's see what happens while we're trying to reach it. Right. You know?
0: The the other piece of that, of course, is that you can't be re- responsible for you can't worry about." What uh, someone thinks about the writing because you have no control over that, right? I mean, you you, no. you hope that they'll get what you're thinking, but it doesn't really matter if they do or not because everybody kind of comes and unpacks their own psychological oh hell yeah, on, on, <laughs> their own psychological baggage.
1: Excuse me, listeners. I'm I'm eating something amazing by the way that <laughs> Michael made for my visit. Uh, I don't even know what it is, but it has chocolate. It has peanuts. It has almonds. Oh, nice almonds and all kinds of yeah it's it's incredible anyway um yeah I think I think that's just an integral experience of being an artist as I say once you go public and by that I mean I think of an an interview that was conducted with Maxine Cuman years ago where she was asked how long she'd been a poet and she said well public or private um you know the private one is much longer um but I think once you go public, I think a frequent experience, for, perhaps a rite of passage for most artists is to have somebody look at something you've made and come up to you and go, oh my God, this thing you did, and then they, they'd explain your art to you and you realize you are seeing this whole other thing that I did, you know. I remember having somebody come up to me after a reading and saying, oh my God, what you said about women in America. And I was like, I didn't say anything about women in America. Oh my God, you know, and I had this, I was, I was in a rather precarious position. I thought, okay, do you say, "I'm terribly sorry. Uh, I, I, I'm glad you got that out of it," but I had not intended that. Or do you say, "Why you're the only one who caught that? I was afraid it was too subtle. Uh, you know." And you got something new coming out, right? Or- yeah, I just had a chapbook come out for which I haven't had, um, and for which I haven't had an official release. Uh, I just had a chapbook come out from a wonderful press called Blue Horse uh, which is uh, curated by a man named uh, Jeffrey Alfier and the book is called Bouncy Bounce and was titled by one of my students uh, a few summers ago. I was teaching a class Mm -hmm. on how to do chapbooks and one of my students, a girl named Sarah got me to admit that I would never done it the way I was teaching them to do it. And she said, no, you're going to do it the way we're doing it. You have to make a book, too, and I get to name it. And so I thought, okay, she's 14. God knows what she's going to ask me to name this book, but I'll go with it. She said, you have to call it Bouncy Bounce. Uh, so this is Bouncy Bounce. And I'm going to read you it. Is there a title poem at Bouncy Bounce? There isn't. Uh, There probably should be. And it would be absolutely consistent with me to write that poem about two years after the book came (laughs) out. Um, And maybe there'll be an expanded edition. Here, I'll um, I'll do a poem from this book. Um, It's the first poem in the book. And uh, it also uh, appears in a magazine called Ethel. This poem is called Cloud Pleaser. Tell me the one about the skeleton and the stewardess again. I forget how it ends. I know the plane goes down over Yellowstone. But doesn't the skeleton get the last word? Isn't the punchline something about how hard it is to find parking now that all the cars are smart? how America always has a head cold, how no one truly wants a kitten. I remember laughing really hard the first time you told me. You'd think that'd be enough to make a memory, but somehow it wasn't. I only seem to hang on to sad things now. That's why I've been walking around all day thinking about the stewardess. Her father died that morning, there was no time to get her shift covered, so she got on the plane in a blur of guilt and recrimination. When she saw the set, the skeleton sitting in first class, she hardly reacted. It made sense. I mean, of course she'd eventually get a dead passenger. Death is everywhere. Life is the intrusion, the stowaway, the joke. The skeleton asked for water, its voice soft as the turning of a page. Then the windows... Were full of trees, and flame. Thank you for saying that. You never know what to say after a poem, though. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, well, you know. yeah, right. Exactly. You could snap your fingers, and my father is fond of saying, "Is that it? Are you done? Is that is that the whole thing? Is that oh oh? It's over. It's over. That's it. Okay. Well, why did why did it stop there? You know, and... yeah. but uh, that's that's. <laughs> Those of you listening, just snap your fingers to yourself if you <laughs> identify with that one. And it may not be your dad, but there's somebody out there, isn't there? Uh, let's try, um, give you another one. This is called, In All Likelihood Your picture is only worth about 620 words. God has no personality. Everybody gets to the next world at the same instant. There is a secret network of bad Samaritans. God has no teeth. You've eaten something living. You own something stolen. God's hearing is shot. You will die on the right day. You are already mourned. Praying aloud is like listening to space. Your first breath has circled the earth several times and passed you by. Thank you, thank you for thank you so much for for, uh, for the snaps. I'll take them. I've heard so many different stories about how that started. One was that, of course, uh, you know, poetry readings would quite often take place in in uh, rooms where they had to be quiet, you know, maybe the basement of a church, or the back of a bar, or, or, you know, or something, and so you applauded by snapping. Um, I also heard that, uh, you know, in many cities, Los Angeles included, it was illegal to read poetry in a coffee house or bar uh, until the 1960s because it uh, was considered an infraction of cabaret licensing. Okay. and uh, you were providing entertainment and I always you, know,
0: thought it was a beat thing I you
1: know, know. right uh, but it, and as I think of it as starting with the beats but as far as why the beats did it did they do it because they thought it was cool to snap yeah, instead yeah. of clapping or were they being discreet were they trying to elude the cops were they you know what <laughs> was the oh yeah, yeah don't let anybody know there's a poetry if anybody out there by the way has the real reason we want to know it yes. uh, please contact this podcast
0: yeah, and so what are we looking forward to with you and your performances? I guess you've got a book forthcoming. This will be in this year, you think? Or? Yeah,
1: this is well. This is officially out. Folks can get Bouncy Bounce online. I just haven't sched. I just haven't been able to schedule any events. I've been uh, so busy uh, doing uh, uh, either with my teaching or um, supporting other uh, poetry events in town. Just today, uh, after I see you today. Um, I'm gonna go support my friend Peggy Dobrier, whose book Drop and Dazzle is out and I'm gonna go participate in that reading and then uh, yeah, I think uh, next week I'm gonna be promoting another friend who has a who has a book out and in January there's gonna be some poets visiting from out of town and I'm hosting them at uh, at a bookstore. Uh, the poet Heather June Gibbons will be in Los Angeles in January and I'll be hosting her at Chevalier's and as I say these, these things pile up and so I I haven't done anything for this new book. I'm, I'm, I feel terrible. I'm going to try to get some events going. Um, but uh, Bouncy Bounce is currently available. If, anybody, uh, if anyone would like me to just show up at their house and, <laughs> and, and read from this book, I'll absolutely do it. Contact me at brendanconstantine.com, and we'll uh, will find a day, and uh, I'll come read the entire book to you. Well, thank you. And, I, and actually, we'll, we'll, we'll do that right now, but we'll do it off the air. Okay, fantastic. (laughs) All right, well, thank you very much, Brennan. Thank you so much for having me and for making me so welcome. my pleasure. Thanks.
0: A.G. Geiger Presents Tales of the L.A. Art Underworld is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with A.G. Geiger Fine Art Books, The Mayfair Hotel, and Regime 72. Check us all out at aggeiger.com, mayfairla.com, and regime72.com.